You are listening to the cycling podcast of the 2023 Tour de France. Today we're in Moulin. Welcome to the Cycling Podcast. I'm Lionel Burney and I'm with Ian Boswell, former Team Sky, Team Katusha rider and podcaster extraordinaire. Welcome, Ian. It's good to be here again, Lionel. And, of course, Mitch Docker. For the final time this Tour de France, we'll try to hold back the tears until the final part of tonight's episode. But uh, you're bowing out tomorrow morning and this was your final day on the 2023 Tour de France. Thanks, Lionel. It's been an absolute treat to be on there, but it's not over yet. We've still got a big stage to review, first and foremost. Where are we, Lionel? Well, we are pretty much bang in the centre of France in a town called Moulin, and our colleague from the press room, Edward Pickering, who's the editor of Rouleur, of course, he told us today that the Tour de France has never had a stage start or finish in Moulin, despite the fact it's a reasonable-sized town. The Tour struggles to get into the very centre of France, uh, really, it doesn't often make its way this way. Towns like Auxerre and uh, Saint-Amand, Montrond, you know, might get visited. But yeah, Moulin, a first-time visit. So history has been made. And Ed came out especially because he studied here, spent a year living in Moulin when he was uh, studying French. And, well, once in a lifetime, once in 120 years of Tour de France history the Tour de France in Moulin, and we're outside a, a nice bar here called L'Entracte, which is uh, basically translates as intermission, and there's a white bicycle with some flowers in a basket on the handlebars just behind us. So they've embraced the Tour de France. It's, it's almost got clipless pedals on it as well. There's a yellow jersey in the window as well. There we are. It's one from it's the a old yellow times. t-shirt, actually, yeah. but <laughs> they did their best. It's it. one thing, though, like you, you do underestimate how much these towns and every single village, town, shop, whatever, have a bike in there. Even a shop you know, a few few towns ago, it was just a clothing store, had these vintage old um, Peugeots in there. Remember I was saying to you? Yeah. It's just, I know, it's just everywhere. Everyone just embraces it. Well, it's that time of day. It's time for the tale of the attack. Not so much Moulin Rouge as Moulin Vert. That was my big line because uh, Jasper uh. Philipson, the green jersey, of course, won his fourth stage of the Tour de France for Alpecin de Koenig. And, well, as we predicted in last night's episode, after such a hard stage yesterday, you couldn't really begrudge the riders a relatively easy day. And when we saw that there were only three riders in the break, we knew that it wouldn't exactly be a you know, hell for leather sprint to the finish well it was a sprint for the finish but the pace on the way was fairly leisurely the break was Mattis Louvel of Arkea Samsic Andre Amador of EF Education and Daniel Oss of Total Energies Louvel was dropped with 53 kilometres to go and a few kilometres later Amador was dropped as well leaving just Oss to ride all the way to around about 15 kilometres from the finish when he was finally caught by the peloton and being led a lot of the day by Sudal Quickstep by no means the only team on the front, but they did do quite a lot. The peloton was rained on, which must have been quite a relief after the intense heat of yesterday. And then there was a tricky-ish run-in to Moulin over the bridge, a sudden narrowing, but it was a fairly clean sprint. Uno X and Alpecin de Koenig were vying for control at the front of the peloton. So a fourth stage win for Jasper Philipson ahead of Dylan Groenewegen of Jaco Alula, Phil Bauhaus of Bahrain Victorious, Brian Cockard of Cofidis and Mads Pedersen of Little Trek. Peter Sagan in the top 10 for the first time in this tour in eighth place. And, well, Jasper Philipson, 
I made the Moulin Vert joke once. I'll do it again because it was so good. He now has a commanding lead in the green jersey competition, the points competition. Jonas Vingegaard still in the yellow jersey, of course. Uh, no threat to that lead overall today. I did wonder whether Jonas Vingegaard was planning to bore Tade Pogacar into submission over the second half of the race, given the uh, non-answers in the press conference. Quite an underwhelming mm. yellow jersey press conference this afternoon in Mulan. But there we go. Jasper Philipson, four sprint wins, and we will break down the sprint in the next part. The cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. We're not going away because we know that the uh, the riders in Sierra Leone aren't going away. So now, just a little bit more help. You'd be surprised how little resource can move the dial hugely for, for, for this group of cyclists. Check out the full range of Science in Sport products at scienceinsport.com. Well, Mitch, a Jasper Philipson sprint win is about as close to a guarantee as anything in this Tour de France at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, and look, he's won all different ways so far. Um, and today, once again, was a, a different style. He didn't have his lead-out men in front of him. They were leading the bunch out, Jonas Rickard. He was also doing a good lead-out, but Philipson was back a few wheels. Um, they got all mixed up. It was actually quite a hectic sprint. Um, I've heard that from the sprinters and lead-out men and you know other guys in the race, but also I could visually see that. The rain added a lot more stress. And I really did feel the pressure was on. There was a lot of stress in the bunch. From 50k out, they were side, from one side of the road to the other, and the trains had started then and there. No one really taking complete control. I don't think that's because no one wanted to. Everyone was doing 50, 60 kilometres an hour. At one point I saw, you know, it was Yumbo pulling on the right-hand side of the road and Jake O'Lou were trying to come up. I was like, why can't Luke Durbridge get past these guys? Then I saw in the corner of the screen, oh, they're doing 81k an hour. 81 kilometres an hour, still pedalling. <laughs> uh, it's a new level, Boz, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was a, a bit of a tailwind coming into town. And I think, you know, <laughs> when the roads do get wet, people, you know, especially the, even the GC teams are up there fighting for position. We saw in the last, you know, 2K of the race, Vingegaard sitting in second wheel, which, mm. you know, I was wondering if he was going to do a lead out. Clearly not, but just making sure to stay safe and, and out of the way of, of any potential crashes, which thankfully we didn't see. Is this gearing as well, having the bigger chain ring on the front i mean i did hear you know the the speeds that the riders get up to on the descent are, are higher than ever because there's an extra tooth or two on the chain rings but that applies just as much on the flat runnings yeah i mean this is something i noticed in the later part of my career was that you know throughout my pro career everyone was on a 53 tooth chain ring and then the last year to my career people started going up to 54s 55s and if everyone's on a 53 you're kind of capped out at the speed you can go everyone's going the same speed you spin out but, you know, as bikes become faster, skin suits, you know, people racing mm. in skin suits on the road. You know, there's a lot of riders now racing on, you know, 55 tooth chain rings on a road stage, not a time trial, a road stage. And, you know, with the equipment now, with the power all these riders have, the speed is just continually going up. And, Mitch, you said Alperson de Koenig have shuffled the pack a little bit and Philipson's won different ways, but the team have approached it slightly differently each time. They've kind of adapted to the circumstances on the on the running. Matthew van der Poel didn't play a role today, really. No, he didn't play a role. Um, you know, I think you heard around the team buses. What, why was the reason he wasn't there, Bob? Yeah, I was kind of loitering around the team bus, and some someone was asking some some staff if, if Vanderpool was sick or if he was out. You know, was he just not feeling good? Is he going to be you know 
what's up with him? And they said, no, he just wasn't on a great day. And, you know, the team's already had so much success here that they just decided, you know what, let's just give him an easier day. You know, clearly Jasper's on incredible form, and let's just let him have a little rest. You know, there's still plenty of stages to go, and, and clearly that didn't really hinder Jasper's ability to win the race today. I mean, quietly, they built a really good support crew for a sprinter haven't they I mean Soren Crow Anderson's one of the fastest mm. riders going remember that stage what was it 2020 where he just rode off the, the front of the peloton and won solo for DSM well he's just strong I, I would almost say argue against fastest he's just a strong rider he can hold a high speed for a long time Ramon Sinkledam he's helped Arno Demar when he was with Group Palmer to all of those stage wins and has slotted in here I mean we'll hear from these guys in a minute and then there's Jonas Rickart who mm. must be well he's a rider you know quite well Mitch but quick in his own right he's quick in his own right and the thing I like about him at the moment is he's got a really good knack for being in the final and that's something it takes a long time to pick up he's got a good awareness of what he needs to do in the split second and he, obviously he's got the, the legs and the, the ability to back it up. You know, we saw in the early stages one of the better lead-outs I've seen for a long time. He was able to adapt, and then when it was time for his... After being in the win for quite a long time, produced a good lead-out. Today, he adapted again, went to the front when it was necessary, did his lead-out, but he didn't also lead sprinters out that he didn't need to. He kept the pace high, moved out of the way, and exposed these guys early, so they had to hit out. And at the end of the day, Philipson had a lead out from other sprinters having to go earlier. Well, let's hear from some of those Alpecin de Koenig riders. Roughly speaking, in the order that they contribute to that lead out, Soren Kral Andersen first, then Ramon Sinkeldam and Jonas Rieker talking about the lead out and just the confidence that Jasper Philipson gives to the whole team. Soren Kral, you played a big role in that key phase of the lead out with about sort of five kilometres to go. I mean, what did you talk about this morning um, in the bus, particularly with regard to that phase of the sprint, the last sort of four or five kilometres? Yeah, uh, left side on the road to, after the village. After, with 13 kilometres to go, we had a tricky section in the village and after that left side. And yeah, I was just trying to keep the team uh, ready to move and uh, taking some wind with Silvan and uh, Michael Gogel. And in the end, yeah, I just had to let them pass in the last two corners, uh, Jasper and uh, Jonas, and they finished it off again, so uh, pretty amazing, yeah. You did it without Mathieu today, I mean, is that the result of just the confidence that's coursing through this team at, at the moment, you can change the parts, but the end result is the same? I would not say that, that uh, Mathieu, he did some pretty amazing things, uh, the three other stages, so uh, yeah, he, he's of course super important, but yeah, today, I think Jasper is just really confident him, himself at the moment, and uh, yeah, of course, he has the legs, yeah. Opportunity for you tomorrow? Uh, looks hard. I didn't look at it yet, but let's see. Yeah, I think uh, Jasper is just uh, the best sprinter at this moment. And uh, also today, it was not perfect in position in the last game, I think. But uh, he managed to, uh, to finish it off, so that's a uh, big uh, congrats to him, yeah. How is it to lead out, Philipsen? You tried Arnold Demar earlier in your career. Philipsen, put some words on that. Yeah, um, for me personally, I didn't do... Uh, a lot of strong efforts so far, but um, yeah, he's just one of the best sprinters now, so uh, yeah, uh, he wins anyways, that's super nice for him especially, uh, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, and just tell me about those last couple of kilometers with the rain and the verge of four victories. Yeah, four victories are crazy and also the final was really crazy with the rain and the wet roads, was really nervous. Uh, 
Yeah, I came in front a bit too early, but just tried uh, to keep it in one line. So Jasper had a place to go. And uh, yeah, and then in the end I saw he went it like, let's say pretty easy. So uh, yeah, fourth victory is nice. Can you tell us why is Jasper so strong? I think he's just uh, super fresh. Like he's, he can survive the mountains uh, the easiest from the sprinters. And uh, he's just a super strong fast guy and uh, I think yeah he shows here that he's uh, the fastest of the world for the moment. Well Dylan Groenewegen was second it looked for a moment like he might have sprung the jump on Philipson but he's getting closer isn't he his sprint results eighth fifth fourth second mm. it does feel like the wind might be coming but opportunities are thinning out a little bit. Two very impressive lead outs here and we'll talk about it was quite a scrappy sprint but Two leadouts I was very impressed with was the Jaco Alula. You know, Luca Mezcek came from behind and potentially it was a little bit early. But I think in that situation he had to get them to the front. They were out of position. But then Uno X, they also did an amazing job for Christoph. And that showed me there that Christoph just doesn't have the speed this year. Um, he was in the right position if he did have the speed, the strength. It looked like he was just a little bit out of legs in that moment and he went on to finish I think something sixth maybe that he was right there in the position to go and take the victory so two really impressive lead outs there but unfortunately their sprinters couldn't go on to to get the victory and Philipson on his own at that point you know once again showing he's not only the fastest but he's the strongest what was the reaction at the Jayco Alula team bus so Mitch because they need to win a stage don't they and I mean, we talked at the start of the tour about are there five sprint chances, are there eight? I'm guessing that as Philipson's won four so far mm. and then obviously uh, there was a the day into San Sebastian where they were denied as well um, because of the jump by Lafay. But uh, running out of opportunities over the like, next 10 days of the race and with so many mountains, it gets a bit more complicated as well, doesn't it? Yeah, well, for the sprinters, it does get more complicated because it, it changes what it is then. You know, they've got to get through the mountains, and that becomes also a job for the rest of the team. Now they're not leading them out in the sprint. Now they're managing their sprinter. How do we get them through the mountains the most easy way, the, the way that they can still perform in you know three, four days' time when they hit another sprint stage? So that's a complete role switch for these guys who are lead out. Man, they become, you know, they've got to take care of them, chauffeur them through the stage. Well, you spoke to Matt White of Jayco Alula at the finish. Let's hear what he had to say. He, he climbs a lot better than he did uh, in the past. He is a different person. Is Absolutely that, different athlete. Is that also a bit that the, the speed becomes a bit less if you climb a bit better? Is that a no, 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 no. He's just he's a lot more robust than he was uh, before he came to this team, which enables him. Last year he cruised through the Tour de France. Uh, and he was able to sprint on the last day in Paris. Yeah. This year he's probably even been in better condition physically which bodes well for three sprints in the last week. Sometimes in the Tour de France, there's one sprint in the last week. This year, we knew there was three, and uh, we've adjusted his uh, run into the Tour de France accordingly. So we're, we're confident that he's... You know, yeah, saw an uphill sprint a couple of days ago. Yeah. Well, it sounds like everything's going perfectly to plan and that mm. Gronewegen's going to get stronger over the second half of the race. There are maybe a couple of sprint opportunities. Paris, of course. There's still time for him. Yeah, well, there's a lot of confidence there, and I sort of like that from Matt White, that... You know, everything's going to plan. Whether that's true or not, he's, he's leading with confidence. Um, and at the end of the day, you can't bow out and go, you know, we're going to fight for second. 
Gronawagen showed today, hey, you better watch out, we're coming. What about uh, Caleb Ewan then? Because mm. yesterday we thought we were being quite clever by imagining that he had sat up and was saving his legs a little bit. Mitch, you spoke to him at the start this morning and, well, we weren't right, were we? Let's hear what Caleb Ewan said this morning. Caleb Ewan, looks like it's going to be a sprint day today. Tell me how you got through the rest day and yesterday's stage. Um, got through the rest day pretty good. Yesterday's stage, I didn't get through good at all. Um, it, was a, oh, it was a horrible day. First dropped, which is never nice, um, and it was just a, a long day out the arse. So I thought it was a strategic move to go to the back to save energy, but actually it was just fully on. No, I actually, there was a big squeeze, like an almost crash, and uh, I had to unclip and stop, but I was already on my limit in the bunch, so once the gap opened up, there was like no chance I could bridge back across, and then I just saw the bunch right away, never saw them again. Um, so yeah, it was almost 170Ks out the back, grim day. You got to see Jakobsen back there, you know, a big sort of competitor in, for you in other races opposed to this Tour de France as well. But how do you think he's travelling and what do you think now of your chances? Something we spoke about before is that once this Tour gets going a bit, once we get the hard stages, it's potentially going to suit you more. Yeah, maybe it's going to suit me more. But then, like, yeah, if I have a day like yesterday, um, it's not great. But hopefully I can, I can recover from it. I, I think whether you're racing in the front or the back, it was a hard day for, for everyone. So um, I think a lot of tired legs today and, yeah, hopefully I've got good legs for the sprint. Any, uh, any idea about how you're going to attack the sprint today, lastly? Not really. I just have to be in good position when we, when we come off that bridge. I think it's around 2K to go. Um, and then just try to figure it out from there, see who's around. And, um, yeah, just be kind of... You can never really plan for it because you never know what's going to happen. But, yeah, we'll see. Well, 15th place for Ewan, 16th place for Fabio Jakobsen of Sudal Quickstep. So he's uh, going to have to survive through quite a lot of mountain stages if he's going to be in uh, contention to win a stage in the final week. But it does feel like the pecking order of sprinters, Philipson, Groenewegen, Bauhaus, even Kokar, Mads Pedersen probably needs harder finishes than today. So fifth place for him today was, was a good one. There's one positive for Caleb is Jasper de Boisch is at the front, feeling good, doing his old job. Unfortunately, Caleb wasn't in his wheel. Caleb was in an okay position and got boxed out in the end. But hearing how his day was yesterday, I imagine he was actually pretty fatigued today because we also saw Jakobsen wasn't there either um, for whatever reason. Maybe they both just had a really hard day. Well, that's a sprint wrapped up, and it was a quietish day for the GC riders. Fairly calm, except for the hectic finale. They've got a lot of work to do coming up. It's going to be a really hard weekend, particularly, and then the final week is very difficult as well. Jonas Vingegaard was in the press conference this evening. I mean, I don't know what you thought, Ian, of the press conference, but it didn't exactly kind of inspire a huge amount of excitement or you know, a drama or... He's quite a calm character, quite a sort of um, opaque character, really. I don't feel like I know him any more from having listened to him talk for a few minutes there at the finish. No, and I guess it's something that I I realised watching that press conference is, you know, most cyclists are kind of introverts and they're, you know, very quiet people and all of a sudden he's thrusted into this position where he's being asked questions that he maybe doesn't feel comfortable sharing. You know, and I think it's very, you know... A lot of Danish, you know, Scandinavian folks—they're they're very reserved. And you know, I was teammates with Bosenhagen, the same thing. They don't—they don't share a lot. They don't talk a lot. Um, and all of a sudden, he's you know, every day going to this press conference where he's being asked questions, and it's hard to come up with. You know, he's not a—he's jo- not Pogacar. He's not someone who's going to be joking around and you know, sitting 
you know, sitting for 10 minutes talking about, you know, a single question. He, he very much sees it as part of the responsibility of having the yellow jersey, but definitely not something that he enjoys. I think this is how impressions of the riders is formed in the minds of the public though, isn't it? Because people make snap judgments about the riders based on what little access they do, do get, whether it's a TV interview or a newspaper article written by a journalist who's just wit witnessed that press conference. Well, I guess, you know, whose responsibility is this? Is this the responsibility of the writer to understand, you know, his responsibility to be a, a character that people can enjoy listening to? Or is that, you know, down to the press, the press officer, you know, to train him to be better interviewed? Or is it just, you know what, you get what you get? Yeah, I mean, you can't force somebody to be a different person. It's, you I can't? don't get a sense, well... You've tried over the last <laughs> 10 days, Mick, but I'm sticking resolutely to who I am. <laughs> but no, I just thought it was interesting. I mean, uh, thinking back historically, Francois would have a very erudite um, comparison to, say, Anquetil and Poulidor, the mm. great riders of the late 50s and 60s. Anquetil was a kind of cold character. Poulidor was a warm character. Anquetil won. Uh, Poulidor was the eternal second, never wore the yellow jersey, famously. And I don't know, I can see sort of how people could very easily become Pogacar fans much more easily than a Vingegaard fan but yeah and, and I think it's just how the athletes you know carry themselves and you know it's, it's a different world for athletes you know if you look at their social medias you know Pogacar is always you know, the other day he was riding down the road on the rest day with a baguette in his pocket and Vingegaard hardly shares anything on social media you know and, and whether and I did speak to, to Luke from UAE Team Emirates and you know they are very aware that it's important to share Pogacar's personality and that's a huge attractment mm. to, to him as a rider but to the team as well it's a huge benefit and they allow that personality to kind of flourish and you know Yumbo in, in a way is almost kind of the modern day Team Sky you know where it, it, they're very calculated and Vingegaard is here to win the race and, and all the other kind of peripheral activities are almost more of a nuisance than, than an, an enhancement for the team. The Cycling Podcast is very proud to be supported by MAP, the Melbourne-based clothing company that's global now. And, well, we can prove that because a couple of Cycling Podcast listeners found each other at the Etape du Tour because they were each wearing the Cycling Podcast MAP jersey and fantastic they look too. If you've been out on the road wearing your Cycling Podcast jersey, do send us a picture. Contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. We'd love to know where you've been riding in your Cycling Podcast jersey. Let's hear from somebody who helps take Maps' ideas and turn them from an idea into reality. My name is Harry Osborne and I lead the apparel design team here at Map. I work with a team of designers and product developers to bring our product concepts to life. So um, uh, looking at where we want to go in terms of our product strategy, and what kind of products we want to make for our customers all the ideation around um, those concepts and, and working with the team to, you know, bring our concepts to life um, and to the market. Fundamentally, you know, I'm a, I'm a cyclist. So, um, you know, working at a company like MAP is a fantastic opportunity to, you know, combine my, my love for cycling and the cycling industry, um, but also my uh, love and experience for, you know, product design and um, apparel design. I feel like I'm in a, you know, a unique situation where I can really do the job that I love in an industry that I love, you know, live and breathe cycling and design at the same time. Yesterday's stage was won by Peo Bilbao of Bahrain, victorious, of course. He was victorious. Uh, he tried back in the bus country, didn't he, in San Sebastian, to spring a jump on everybody else just before the run-in, and he got the victory yesterday. And I was surprised to 
delve into his career history and find that he's been a pro for 13 years. You know, I, I had this impression of him as being almost still kind of maybe late 20s and still a possible outsider for a sort of Tour de France podium, but he's getting a bit long in the tooth now, 33 years of age. And, uh, it'll be, well, he'll be on a podcast soon, won't he, I expect. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I spoke to Laura Messica, cycling expert for Eurosport and GCN. She's Spanish, of course, and knows Bilbao well. And uh, it was a significant day, not least because the team lost Gino Maida in the Tour de Suisse a few weeks ago and has been riding with Maida in their hearts. And, well, this is what Laura Messica said, not just about Peo Bilbao, but also about the long Spanish drought because it's been five years since Spain has won a stage of the Tour de France. So, Laura, big day for Peo Bilbao yesterday and for Bahrain Victorious for obvious reasons. What can you tell us about Peo? Well, Peo is, um, first of all, a very nice guy, super intelligent. He was uh, studying... uh, science of sport, something like that, in university um, before becoming, or in the time he was becoming a professional cyclist. He's, I think he's underrated in Spanish cycling and in cycling in general. You saw yesterday that, I mean, as soon as I saw him in the breakaway, I was sure he was going to be like the main contender for the victory. And I think rivals, I think he underrated them a little bit also because um, he's quality in the sprint and as a rider and he knows a lot about like the, the profession you could see that he was not panicking at all when um, Ineos was fighting behind to chase him um, yeah super normal guy discreet like very close to his friends his wife is uh, his girlfriend from you know the very beginning <laughs> like when they are very, very young. And yeah, that's, uh, I think that's what I appreciate from him. He's very humble. We think of him as a GC rider, so I was surprised by how fast he was at the finish. Yeah, exactly, but you know, we, we think about him as a GC rider, but then again, when we are doing like the previews of the races, nobody speaks about Peyo Bilbao, at least in Spain, uh, about his possibilities in the GC, which is crazy because he has uh, shown that uh, he's very strong, I mean, that he can be there. And he was ninth in the tour a few years ago, a couple of years ago. He had three top ten, I think, if I'm not confused, at the Giro. And yesterday, I think it was a very intelligent move. And because of, I think because of that underrated feeling in general, he was kind of allowed to go there, allowed. Um, yeah, but he has a very, very good sprint. And we saw that also in Itzulia last year when he won Alaphilippe. Of course, yeah. And I mean, the significance of the win for Bahrain Victorious as well, coming just a few weeks after Gino Maida died in the Tour de Suisse. Um, the atmosphere in the team last night must have been one of conflicting emotions. We'll, we'll try and find out. But what do you know? Well, from the very, very beginning, and I tell you this with goosebumps, uh, speaking with Peyo before the tour, it was all about Gino, all about Gino, because they were very, very good friends. And I think also um, it changed his perspective about everything in life. Sadly, when you experience these things, um, everything changed no, a little bit. And um, he was there in the presentation of the teams in Bilbao, talking to us, taking the time, you know, and and then asking like why everyone is so stressed, everyone is running everywhere, we should you know, take some 
time to enjoy what we are doing and and since the very beginning he wanted to do something for for Dino and I think that's what it gave him an extra energy and strength yesterday. Often we see with GC riders that they have to race so kind of defensively don't they because they're not often allowed in the breakaway you, you use the word allowed but he got in the breakaway he took his opportunity and now he's right back in the GC battle as well. Yeah he was telling me yesterday in the morning like well normally and also from Bilbao normally from the beginning of the tour his plan was to try to win the first or second stage in País Vasco and then he wanted or the team wanted him to to lose time so he could help Mikel Landa and be that to play that card but yesterday he told me the team seeing him so strong has asked him like stay there try to get as far as you can in the GC and look what happened yesterday <laughs> from 11th to 5th in a very classy move and a big win for Spain Yesterday was 100 stages of the Tour de France without a victory of a Spanish rider. And we were so used to see all these guys winning. I mean, one day it was Alberto Contador, other day it was Alejandro Valverde or Samuel Sánchez. Not, not only at the Tour, but in general, Carlos Sastre, Freire. I mean, we had such a strong generation that these guys in the middle between Contador and Juan Ayuso, Carlos Rodríguez, um, like um, Omar Fraile, Peyo Bilbao and so on, they have a struggle to, you know, to be uh, valued for what they do. So we were really, really looking for this uh, victory, looking forward to it and let's hope we don't have to wait another five years. I don't think so anyway. It was Omar Fraile in Mond in 2018. Is that the longest spell without a Spanish stage winner in the tour history, do you know? Well, I, I can tell you, but um, especially from where we were coming from, uh, it, it, it felt like a long, long way. Uh, also, Spain always has presence. I mean, it's one of the traditional countries in cycling. No? So I can tell you if it was the longest wait, but it felt really, really long. Ian, you were at the Bahrain Victorious bus this morning and you spoke to one of their riders, Wout Poles, former teammate of yours on Team Sky and to the Bahrain sports director, Zabi Florencio. And I think uh, these couple of interviews just highlight uh, what a boost to the whole team uh, Bill Bauer's victory gave them yesterday. And everyone wanting to pay tribute to Gino Maida in the best and probably only way they know how. Yeah, and you know, you'll hear in, in Wout's interview, you know, he does kind of choke up a bit. I think it's still really prominent within the team. And, and you know, I've only been here one day, and it wasn't until walking up to their bus today that I realized that on their jersey and on their bus, there's a, you know, a hashtag ride for Gino. And it is something that I think the team really is carrying deep within kind of their their mindset here at, at the tour. Because, it, I mean, it's a tragic thing to, to lose, you know, a friend and a teammate, but to lose someone doing something that they're still here doing. You know, they're not... Mm. You're deciding to go slower on the descents because they realize the danger. They're, they still are expected to race. And as much as they may be affected, you know, off the bike, when they get on the bike, they have to put their game face on and they have to race like they have for, the, for their entire careers. Well, this is Wout Poles and Zabi Florencio. I think it's anyway always nice to win a stage, of course, but especially what happened the last three weeks. It's even even more nice to win and you know a lot of emotions comes then so uh, yeah it was a, a really nice feeling but also you know we're mixed feelings and you knew Gino fairly well and clearly you know that's for any any athlete I think even the fans you know that was really a tragic moment in cycling that people 
you know, we don't think about happening, but, but it, it did happen. And to get that stage win yesterday, you know, do you have any sort of connection with, with Gino's family or friends or speak to anyone yesterday after the race? Uh, no, not, not directly, but still, for me, it's still really unreal. I still can't believe it. I think I'm only going to realize it in December. Maybe if you go to the next training camp and you're really like, hmm, we miss someone because normally you're on the road and you don't see each other all the time. But it's so unreal, so young, and then, uh, yeah, just really sad. And, um, yeah, you, re you feel really sorry for the family, of course, his girlfriend, uh, parents. Yeah, it's, like, unbelievable. It's been a challenging couple of weeks for the team after the loss of Gino. It, what does it mean to have that win, and, and how much is his spirit still with the riders on the bus and, I guess, in the car? You know, it was a <laughs> super difficult moment for us, but yesterday we can dedicate this victory for Gino we we are fine on phone to 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 give this victory for him so when we start from the tour from Bilbao it was impossible because all the riders was stronger than us but yesterday was super day for us and like you said it's super important for us to to dedicate this 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 win to to Gino no Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. One thing I forgot to mention after I was hanging around outside the Alpecin de Kerning team bus after the stage was the team car came in driven by Bart Lason, one of the sports directors, and there wasn't a lot of room on that road where the team buses were parked and he just kept driving closer and closer to the bus until the bikes on the roof were in danger of ripping the awning off the side of the, of the team bus. All a bit of a to-do. I mean, they had the lead out absolutely perfect, but maybe need to work a little bit on the, the team car driving skills. Mitch, uh, I'm going to miss your driving over the next few days. I'll be at the wheel. I'll have the, <laughs> the seat pulled right up to the to the steering wheel so that my stumpy legs can reach well, the pedals. Something you've noticed, our great friend Richard Moore always used to make fun of my uh, lack of proportions, my short legs and long body. And I, I'm just glad that you managed to notice that as well. You've been giving me grief about it all week. Well, there'll be a warning for listeners that the podcast won't be getting in until, you know, 11, 30, 12 from now on. Um, <laughs> because Lionel will be just keeping it slow and steady. Observing the speed limit, I think it's called. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just a couple of things. We gave Kilometre Zero a bit of a break this morning because there was an episode of Arrivé focusing on the Giro Donna, the Women's Giro d'Italia, of course, hosted by Rose Manley, and a new voice on the podcast, Denny Gray, who will also be hosting our Tour de France fam coverage with Rose in, what, a week or so's time. Lizzie Banks also joined the episode, and tomorrow's Kilometre Zero 
is Lizzie Banks's Mountain Recon. She went and rode all of the upcoming stages from Le Grand Colombier to Courchevel and made a little audio diary, her observations of the region and the climbs. Uh, so listen out for that tomorrow. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com to sign up as a friend of the podcast and you can listen to all of the Kilometre Zero episodes and 100 and plus episodes in the archive. You can also sign up on a monthly basis now. Uh, you don't have to sign up for a whole year. So if you just want to dip in and see what's on offer, you can do so for the price of, well, a couple of cups of afternoon cappuccino. A few other bits of business. Uh, we need to hear from our very good friend, Francois Tomazo. Now for some French flavour would be Francois Tomazo. Well, guys, we've been in Clermont-Ferrand for quite a while now. Uh, well, around the Puy-de-Dôme for three, four days. I, I really believe it's time to celebrate Raphael Geminiani before the start of the, the since the start of the tour, we celebrated uh, André Darigad, Raymond Poulidor, Luis Ocania, and Clermont-Ferrand was definitely the stronghold, the hometown, the base of uh, Raphael Geminiani. He might not be as famous in memories as, as some of the previous uh, riders I mentioned, but he was probably even more swashbuckling and uh, larger than life. Still alive, he's uh, 98 years old, and it's a man who finished twice on the tour podium, uh, finished second too, won seven Tour de France stages, and was the best climber uh, in two Grand Tours, so a, a real high-profile rider, and he was always on the attack. That's the kind of riders, you know, were... Well, the French like because of that, always, always attacking, kind of a Thibaut Pinot, swashbuckling, almost all the time, hopeless attacks, but he would keep, he would attack and attack and attack. And he attacked so much that it earned him also his frame. He was, he was tall with a, with a long nose. Uh, all this earned him the uh, nickname Le Grand Fusil, the great rifle or the big gun, if you want. Uh, he was, he actually was, uh, Riding in the first time the Tour de France went to the Puy de Dome, uh, which Fasto Copy won, and he, he led most of the way. It was, you know, this mountain was his mountain, but it, it cracked as he often did because he overdid it a little bit and finished fourth uh, that day. Uh, he was also a man of, of the night. I mean, when he was still doing the Tour de France as a follower, uh, when I started covering the Tour, and you knew every town you were going, every stage finish. You knew that the best restaurant in town was was the place where Raphael Geminiani would uh, would have dinner. I mean, he created lots of things in cycling. Uh, was a DS for Anctil, won four Tours de France with Anctil, uh, and I mean, and he also introduced uh, brands, uh, sponsors, partners, which were not linked to cycling. He was the first one to have. He took a, the brand of the Aperitif Saint Raphael, a well named brand because you know Saint Raphael. He was his first name, uh, and, and it became the, the team he founded with it. So really a larger-than-life character. I mean, uh, uh, all the, the, the friends who, who recently in, in interviewed Raphael Gemiani in his pensioner's home at the age of 98 said he's still the big gun. Well, our mini-break in Clermont-Ferrand is at an end. I thought our guest house was a real find, wasn't it? A lovely place to spend three nights. Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to have your own little apartment, you know, little kitchen. You guys came down and met me for coffee each morning. I like that mine became the hub. Well, you were on the first floor. I was on the second floor. Ian was on the 
third floor uh, heat rises unfortunately it was absolutely sweltering <laughs> the last couple of days so you're probably steaming away in your room here yeah I did I mean I was able to get some sleep eventually but uh, <laughs> yeah I was also up early got out for some rides and would come back to a little basket of uh, pastries hanging on my door I never saw anyone work at the Airbnb or the hotel but every time I'd come back from a ride there was a basket of, of pastries <laughs> waiting for me yeah it was nice nice setup but what about the important business of yesterday's dinner l'étape de demain le dîner d'hier tomorrow's stage yesterday's dinner well we, we I tried to book a restaurant it was called La Chardonnay but Ian speaks very good French actually Ian I was very impressed with your French tried to call the restaurant it was full so we, we ultimately ultimately had to find a restaurant very quickly which was called um, what was it La called La Table de Terry there we go Terry's Table Mr. Terry he is a one man show one man band he came out took our order and we started to put it together I think there's this one person here it was a really good experience Fre full on French experience and it was a job of passion he was just doing it I think because he loves talking to whoever comes into his restaurant don't you think guys Yeah, I mean, at first he thought we had worked for Michelin because I guess you know Michelin is based in, in Clermont-Ferrand, and us being English speakers, he thought we had come for come for business. But we told him we we're here for the Tour de France. I'm, wait, I'm waiting for the joke. Did they think I was the Michelin man? <laughs> I'm waiting for it. Come on, Scott's don't here. let me down and, uh, and pull punches on that one. Uh, no, but we, we learned a lot about him in our, I guess, two and a half hour dinner. Seventy-one year old gentleman working the restaurant by himself. Everything from cooking to pouring wine, waiting tables. Uh, I assume after we all left, also doing the dishes. So very impressive. It was. And the food itself was great, wasn't it? Ian, you were bold. You went for the escargot, the snails. Uh, six of them. How many of them were gritty and how many chewy? First one, smooth. and was, I don't mind the chew. Um, there were two that were very gritty. Got a little bit of sand or dirt in there, but yeah. you just kind of grind through it. Challenging, challenging. And then we had the confit de canard, didn't we, Mitch? The, the, the duck leg with the aligo, which is the local... Uh, mashed potato but it's basically mashed cheese and garlic mm. with a little bit of potato to hold it all together very nice indeed and I like the the wine recommendations as well he was just serving what he wanted to serve as, as much as anything there was no it? wine list no prices you just said what wine do you want and we sort of said oh well, something to go with this and you just presented a, a nice Loire no it wasn't Loire what was it a Languedoc actually a, a bottle from Languedoc And then uh, we suggested a Cote de Rome, which he brought out a lovely second bottle. He was a bit dubious, wasn't he, about that? But he did go with it, and it was it was nice. But it meant there was no time for any darts last night. So our cycling podcast darts tournament is curtailed at, I think, 2-1 to me, Mitch? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Mitch, one thing we're going to miss when you head off for your, first of all, epic ride, and then you go back home to Australia. We're going to miss your... Immaculate French pronunciation. <laughs> I will, as we go into the mountains, I will be enjoying the horse category climbs, especially. That's uh, that's that's uh, <laughs> something that I will look out for. But you asked Thierry to help with the pronunciation of tomorrow's stage. All right, because apparently I can't speak French, we have found a real Frenchman, Frenchman, to say tomorrow's stage. Demain. La course va Rouen et puis ensuite Belleville en Beaujolais. Merci, monsieur. Merci à vous. Well, he got it spot on, didn't he? Well, he did, believe it or not. Um, tomorrow's stage, 
as you heard where it's from. I don't need to repeat that. Um, oh, come on, Mitch. One, one, one final time. Let's hear it. We're heading, we're heading out from Rouen to Belleville in Beaujolais. Ace. Good oh, work. yeah. Well, Beaujolais, I've raced through the Beaujolais region in Paris-Nice. It is hard racing. If you ever go through proper wine regions, anyone who knows has been to wine regions, they're all, not always, but these regions are always on a hill and there's a road winding through them, up and down, left and right, and that's exactly what they've got tomorrow. I've never, I can't remember going through Rowan, but I'm sure I've been through there. But we've, we've got five category climbs tomorrow, three Cat 3s, two Cat 2s, but the whole day could be category climbs. It's just up and down the whole day. 168 kilometres. I'm tipping breakaway, Boz. You raced through the Beaujolais. Any memories from there? I'm sure I did. Paris-Nice or, or some other races. Um, yeah, I mean, even just having spoken to some riders before yesterday's stage, they'd tipped, you know, yesterday, breakaway win, and again, tomorrow, breakaway before, you know, really kind of the final chance before the weekend for for maybe not the climbers, but kind of these roulers. You know, mm. it's, it's not a mountaintop finish. So, I mean, look for, for similar names that we saw out there yesterday. I mean, I've been to Moulin on Paris-Nice. This is a real classic Paris-Nice type town, isn't it, as the race makes its way from the capital down to the Côte d'Azur. Tomorrow is kind of like the Venn diagram of Paris-Nice and the Dauphiné because when the Dauphiné in recent years has started coming further west, uh, Roanne and uh, Belleville and Beaujolais are the sorts of places that they, they would go. So we know it will be tough racing. And I don't want to say they've had a day off today because they certainly haven't. But in this kind of ebb and flow of the way the race has unfolded, you could imagine that tomorrow could be just as aggressive, just mm. as difficult as yesterday was. I think so. After a you know, somewhat easier, boring day, apparently, in the peloton, everyone will be G'd up, ready to go tomorrow. Well, Mitch, thank you very much for your company over the past 10 days. It's been an absolute blast. Um, very, very grateful that you've joined the cycling podcast for this year's Tour de France, and hopefully you'll be back in future years. I mean, negotiations mm. might be more complicated after after some of the things I've learned over the last 10 days. But you're definitely going to be back, aren't you, at the tour? And I hope that you will be on the Cycling Podcast again. Absolutely love being on the Cycling Podcast. And everyone out there who's listening and feels that atmosphere that we have, it's exactly like that. It's a very, very fun trip. It's heavy work, heavy lifting on my side. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, it is, it is a great time. And um, I love being a guest on this show. And I hope you guys enjoy whatever kind of insights I can give. And, Boz, good luck, buddy. Can you give a little insight into what you're doing before you get on your flight back to Australia? I'm heading across. I've got five days left. I'm going to go across. I've been doing a few documentaries with GCN over the last few years. They've got that extra channel, um, which is all cycling-style documentaries. And I'm going to be attempting an epic ride. Um, It is epic. It is epic. 1992, Claudio Kiyopucci. It was an epic stage. And I'm going to be trying to tackle that stage as it was back in 1992. It's the one that was 254 kilometres. It went over the Iseron, the Corme de Roseland, and up to Sestriere, and he won that stage in 7 hours 55 minutes. So I'm going to be really interested to see how long it takes you. Isn't that crazy? The winner, (laughs) 7 hours 55. Like, clearly I'm very similar to Claudio. If anyone remembers, you know, small, dark-skinned Italian guy. um, Climber. that's expert climber. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, I can see why I've been, you know, commissioned for this doco. 
Well, before we go, I just want to give a shout out to the Tour 21 team. Uh, Hayden Groves and David McNally have been in touch, uh, both friends of the podcast. They're riding the Tour de France route one week adva- in advance. So they've only got a few more days to go and they're trying to raise a million pounds for Cure Leukemia. They're well on the way to that target, but they want some more uh, donations for a very good cause. And they, well, they said that the, the Colombia stage was extremely hard. And, uh, well, good luck to Hayden, David, and everyone else in the Tour 21 team. Uh, You can Google them and donate if you want to support that cause. And, well, we'll find out just what the race has in store on those stages over the coming days. Ian, thank you very much. Thank you, Lionel. And thank you, and bon voyage, Mitch. Adios, amigo. (laughs) The French at the end there. Brilliant. (laughs) Finally picked it up. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.